Matthew chapter 14, verse 1 to 21. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And the disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on, the, on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages to buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Thanks very much, Ryan, for reading for us. And Mab, my welcome to you this morning. Wonderful to have you with us. Now, over Easter, perhaps you or some children you know took part in an Easter egg hunt. And as you gathered up the eggs, maybe you put them in a basket. Did you think of that old saying, don't put all your eggs in one basket? And the wisdom, of course, is spread them out in case the basket breaks or you drop it so you don't lose all the eggs. And I guess perhaps here in the city, the, well, the equivalent version is a mixed portfolio of investments. Well, in Matthew's Gospel, we meet Jesus, and he's got a message. His message is, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we were reminded last week what it meant to repent. It's to turn around 180 degrees. It's what the marathon runner who might take a wrong turning this morning is going to need to do to change direction. It's, and in response to Jesus and his kingdom, well, it's to turn from living life with ourselves as king to living with Jesus as our king, to surrender to him, 
to follow him, to come under his rule. And so the question is, well, what's he like as a king? Is he really better? In 21st century London, Jesus gets some bad press. Have you come across the book, Being the Bad Guys? Um, I would hold up a copy for you, but I've only got it as an e-book, so that would be just like holding up a laptop or something. But the author observes in this book, well, we're in a culture now that increasingly Christianity is viewed as the bad guy. Christianity is no longer an option, it's a problem. And he goes on to note that, well, often we're accused of doing wrong, not because we're living too little like Jesus, but because we're living too much like Jesus. Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the question is, well, should I put all my eggs in his basket and live my life all out for him? We might put it another way, will it be good for me to repent? What's it like to come to this king? And can I be confident in him and his kingdom? Matthew wants us to have real confidence in Jesus. In this section, he wants to strengthen our faith. We're in week two of a series in chapters 14 through 18. And we saw last week that there's a sort of center point here in chapter 16, where we see Jesus reveal his identity. He says to Simon Peter, uh, Simon Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus reveals our identity. It's a section teaching us about being Jesus' family. Jesus says to Peter, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we're in for a summer of discipleship as Matthew, this disciple-making disciple, shows us Jesus gathering his church and teaches us what it's like to be his family. And we saw last week, didn't we, that he's gathering this church in a hostile world and we stared that hostility in the face. We saw the ugliness of unbelief. Well, this week we look at Jesus and we look at his kingdom and we see the beauty of belief. We see that to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand is a wonderful message. We see that the kind of king we have when we put our eggs in his basket, well, we see he's a compassionate king who cares for his kingdom and we see that he's a divine king who confirms his kingdom. So our first point this morning, the compassionate king who cares for his kingdom. And last week, we tuned in to the Warts and All documentary on Herod, the Panorama Exposé, Unbelief Exposed, Unbelief Understood. And we saw in this picture of Herod, well, what the world is like, what we're all like by nature, a refusal to repent, a determination to silence the truth. And it was unreasonable and it was ugly. But we see it everywhere, don't we? The heart that says, I will do what I want to do. The kind of strange, implausible saying of our contemporary culture that says, do what you want, just don't hurt anybody. And we know it doesn't work. And so just this week, well, we've seen the conflict in Sudan. We've seen front yard shootings when children go and collect their basketballs. We've seen political infighting. We've even seen influencers taking advantage of their followers to try and sell sports drinks. Have you bought a bottle of Prime? And no doubt in the workplace where we've seen the effects of personal ambition and perhaps we've seen it closer to home. Perhaps we've seen it in here. We read the verses about Herod again this morning because they show us the fruit of unrepentance ripening and we're supposed to recoil at it. 
And then we're supposed to look at Jesus, the king and his kingdom, the one we are called to turn to. In his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis wrote these well-known words. He said, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what's been, what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. So if we're resisting Jesus' call to repent, or if we've lost confidence in our king, well, could it be that we've become so focused on the mud pies that we've lost sight of the sea? This morning, we're going to look again at Jesus. And let's look in verse, chapter 14, verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. What Jesus heard, well, it was not the report of John's death. That had happened earlier. That was a bit of a flashback. What he heard was Herod's announcement in uh, chapter 14, verse 2, of who he thought Jesus was. Herod said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. That's what Jesus is responding to when he withdraws. And it's Herod's bizarre assessment. It betrayed Herod's guilty conscience at his murder of John the Baptist. And it showed his refusal to repent. A tragic reality, really. Whatever guilt he carried, he would rather keep hold of it himself, try and bury it or try and soothe it some way, instead of come to Jesus, who can really deal with it. The king who offers forgiveness and cleansing of conscience and rest for our souls. And in the face of that unrepentance, in the face of that hostility, well, Jesus withdrew. If we resist the king and his kingdom, we remain outside. But whilst he withdrew from Herod, he didn't stop gathering his church. Have a look at the second half of verse 13. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Herod Well, he heard and resisted, but the crowds heard and they followed. And I think at this point, we're not supposed to worry too much about exactly what the crowds understood. Because the point here is that Matthew wants us to see how Jesus treats those who come to him. It's very striking through these verses how prominent the disciples are. They're there in verse 15, uh, the beginning raising the issue. And then it's dialogue, 16, 17, 18 with Jesus. And then in verse 19 at the end, Jesus broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. They're right involved, right in the heart of it, because Jesus is teaching them something. He's teaching them what he's like. He's showing them what he's like by the way he responds to the crowds. And Matthew wants us to have, well, see the same thing, to have confidence in the king. How will Jesus treat me if I come to him honestly, and openly with my sin? How will he treat me if I come to him with my mess or my baggage, my needs, my sadnesses? Verse 14. When he went to saw, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Compassion is to have pity on a person in need. Compassion is not patronizing. It's real sympathy. Compassion understands. It is kind. It's the friend who takes time to listen. It's the parent who picks up the fallen child and sits them on their knee. It's the person who takes loving action or gives wise counsel. And this word for compassion comes up three times in chapters 14 to 18 in Matthew. 
It's here at the feeding of the 5,000, comes up at the feeding of the 4,000, and then it comes up in chapter 18 where Jesus tells the story of a servant, and this servant has a debt he simply cannot pay. And the servant comes to his master and he pleads for mercy. And Jesus says, out of pity for him, that's the same word, the compassion word, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. See, it can be possible to keep Jesus at arm's length, never come to him honestly with our sin and confess it or deal with it. Or we can be in and around Jesus. We can be in church with his people, but never actually surrender our lives to Jesus. I remember chatting to a colleague when I worked at BT, and he was interested in Jesus. And over time, we had various conversations. And at one point, I asked him, well, what's stopping you putting your trust in Jesus? And he said, well, the issue is, can I trust he'll be good for me? Well, here in Matthew's gospel, we see the king of the kingdom of heaven who meets all who come to him with mercy and compassion. I spoke to someone recently who described coming to Jesus as like having a great stone literally lifted from their back and carried away up into the heavens. The crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And more than that, the word compassion, well, it, it comes from the noun which speaks of the seat of the emotions. It, if we like, it's what we would call the heart. This is a picture of Jesus' heart towards those who come to him. And it's such a contrast with Herod. Unrepentant Herod's heart meditates on murder. He pursues what it wants and it causes damage and harm. It uses and abuses. It treads down on people. And that's what we see in the world around us. And perhaps we get so used to it that we just assume that Jesus will be the same. And so, well, we hold back from wholeheartedly following him because we're not really confident he'll be good for us. Matthew wants to strengthen our faith. He is showing us Jesus' heart. And not only do we see his compassion, but we see his care. As we contrast the kings, we also contrast their banquets We saw Herod's banquet last week. Well, here is Jesus' banquet. Verse 15. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. Did you notice at the start of this that this miracle seems to be slightly unnecessary? Because the disciples have come up with a solution to the problem straight away. They came to Jesus, this is a desolate place, the day is now over, send the crowds away into the villages to buy food for themselves. It's an easy one to solve, send them back down the hill, there's a subway, there's an M&S food, other eateries are available, they'll be sorted. But notice what Jesus says, verse 16, they need not go away. Verse 18, bring them here to me. See, these people have come to Jesus And Jesus will care for them. 
The people are hungry, and in their need, Jesus brings them nearer. He feeds them. And in this room, there will be countless personal testimonies of Jesus' care and provision and compassion. Perhaps over tea and coffee, wouldn't that be a great conversation to have with one another? To ask one another, well, how have you known Jesus' compassion? How have you known Jesus' care in your life? An exercise I sometimes find helpful personally is just to look back at at, at my life, particularly when it's a tough time, and think, has Jesus ever failed me? Perhaps you're here this morning investigating the Christian faith. Can I urge you to keep looking at Jesus, to keep coming here on Sunday mornings or to come along on a Tuesday evening to our central focus groups or on a Wednesday night to international growth groups and look at the person of Jesus in the words of the Bible because our world is full of false ideas about him because our world resists the truth. Our world calls him the bad guy. But don't let unreasonable unbelief shape your view of him. Come and see for yourself the compassionate king who cares for his kingdom. Well, perhaps you might say, well, it's still hard to follow Jesus in a hostile world. We saw that last week, didn't we? The reality of hostility. If we're followers of Jesus who live fully for him, who speak his truth, well, we will feel the cost. And this miracle here, well, it not only shows us the heart of King Jesus, it's a picture of his ongoing care for his church. Shirley read to us earlier our first reading from 2 Kings chapter 4. And back in 2 Kings chapter 4, we meet the prophet Elijah and we encounter the feeding miracle. Let me just read it again for us. I'll read it to remind us. 2 Kings 4, 42. A man came from Baal Shalashar, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elijah said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. It's not hard to see the comparisons between what Jesus has just done here with the great crowds and the conclusion they had some left. And this is one of many miracles Elisha performed, which provided for and cared for and gave life to God's people in the midst of a hostile land. Elisha's ministry, if you like, brought life in a world full of death. Much of it happened in the northern part of Israel, the same region Herod ruled. And at the time, it was ruled by King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And Jezebel is not a name we tend to give to our daughters, and it's for good reason. She and Ahab went to, un, went to remarkable lengths to resist repentance. They were determined to silence God's truth. Jezebel oversaw the murder of the prophets of Israel. And when confronted with the prophet Elijah and his call to repent, well, Ahab called him a troubler, a troublemaker, the bad guys. And well, Jezebel vowed to kill him within 24 hours. And when Elijah departed, Elisha came, and in the midst of this hostility, well, he cared for God's people. And so when we see in Matthew's Gospel, Herod and Herodias, well, there's an echo of Ahab and Jezebel there. And when we see their response to John the Baptist, well, it's more than an echo of Elijah. In chapter 17, Jesus says, John is the second Elijah, 
who has come to announce the coming of God's king. And so then when we see Jesus feeding the crowds on the mountain, we're to think, here's the true Elijah, true Elisha, the one who's caring for God's people in a hostile world. Whenever hostility comes, Jesus will look after his church. In a hostile world, living wholeheartedly for Jesus is the best thing we can possibly do because our king will care for his people. He's going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And in a hostile world, well, repentance is the best thing we can possibly do. Last week, church leaders from across the world met in Rwanda for a conference and one of the things they reminded one another is that Jesus' church is to be a repenting church. And to be a repenting church is a good thing because we are turning to our compassionate king, the one who cares for his kingdom. Jesus is the compassionate king who cares for his kingdom. And not only that, but he's the king who delivers a wonderful kingdom. And this is our second point this morning, the divine king who confirms his kingdom. This miracle not only shows us what Jesus is like, it shows us who Jesus is. And as we see his identity confirmed, well, we can be confident in the reality of his kingdom. I remember being at a staff meeting here at St. Helens some time back, and a Latvian pastor came and spoke to us. And he told the story of how before he became a Christian, he'd become accepted to be the pastor in one of the church denominations there. He'd done it because it was a good career. And he told of how when it came to feeding of the 5,000, he was at pains to show how this miracle couldn't really have actually happened. And so he would say, well, it was just the force of Jesus' presence and personality that as he walked among them, it made the people feel satisfied and full. Here's what J.C. Ryle puts, uh, says about that kind of thinking. He says, to satisfy the hunger of more than 5,000 people with so small a portion of food as five loaves and two fishes would be manifestly impossible without a supernatural multiplication of the food. It was a thing no magician, imposter, or false prophet would ever have attempted. He would know full well that he could not persuade 10,000 men, women, and children that they were full when they were hungry. This is a miracle of divine power. And it's full of identifying details. We said together earlier the words from Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Well, these are words that describe the character of God. And it's the heart we see on display in the person of Jesus. We're looking at the Lord here. And the Exodus contain, con, uh, connections, they continue. The story of the Exodus is one of God hearing the cries of his people for help and redeeming them out of slavery under the rule of an unrepentant king so they could be his people and enjoy his blessing under his rule in the land he prepared, a rescue from the realm of a murderous king to, be, to a new beginning in the care of a compassionate king. And as the Lord led his people on the journey through the wilderness to the promised land, where well, we saw him, we find he provided miraculous food, bread from heaven, manna in the wilderness, and so here is Jesus in a desolate place, literally a wilderness. And he's providing miraculous food, bread from heaven. He looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave it to them, to the disciples. 
The disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. Jesus feeding the thousands with this bread from heaven is Jesus doing the work of the rescuing Lord of the Exodus. The great promises of God coming to fulfillment. The divine king, the kingdom confirmed. And it's a really concrete, tangible demonstration. We've seen manifestos recently in the SNP leadership contest. There'll be more coming up with local elections, flyers dropping through our doors, and they're making promises and setting ambitions and talking of good things to come. But manifestos are one thing. Here Jesus shows us that the kingdom of heaven is not just a nice idea, it's a reality. He shows his authority to deliver the kingdom of heaven according to God's salvation plan. As he feeds the crowds, we see a demonstration of the kingdom. And it's tangible, it's tactile, it's sensory. And I think that's one of the reasons why the disciples' involvement is so significant here. Because as Matthew seeks to give us confidence in our king and his kingdom, when he does so as one who actually had crumbs on his fingers, as one who would have remembered the, perhaps the tired back, the aching legs, as he and the others distributed bread among 10, 15, 20,000 people, as one who would have seen the faces of the crowds as they ate and were satisfied. We saw last week the historical Herod, and in him a mirror of ugliness and unbelief. And here we see the historical Jesus and the goodness of the king and the reality of the kingdom for all who will repent. And it's a kingdom that satisfies. They all ate and were satisfied. And that language of satisfaction in Matthew, it's here, it's in the feeding of the 4,000, and it's in chapter, it's, and it comes up in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. See, the search for satisfaction, well, that's a universal human experience, isn't it? And in a world that resists the truth, well, there are countless places to seek it apart from Jesus. And as Herod showed us, they're slippery slopes into the ugliness of unrepentance. But Jesus' kingdom satisfies. In the kingdom of heaven, there's comfort for those who mourn their sin. In the kingdom of heaven, there's satisfaction for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In the kingdom of heaven, there are rest for souls that are weary and burdened. In the kingdom of heaven, we are met by a compassionate king who cares for his people. Perhaps we're thinking, though, well, I've come to Jesus and it's still hard. As we follow Jesus in this world, we will face trials and difficulty and decay and hostility. There will be death because we live in this world in rebellion, which is in rebellion to its king. And these, well, they're the wide-ranging consequences of human sin. But in the kingdom of heaven, we know the care of the king now. And we have confidence in the sure hope of its fullness to come. Just turn back to page 708 in your church Bibles. Page 708, and you should find Isaiah 25. This is the prophet Isaiah describing the fullness of the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom that will be coming in completion when Jesus returns. And he describes it as a banquet, a feast, a great feeding, a picture of what it's like for all who have come to Jesus and to enjoy a final victory with him. Let me read from verse 6. 
On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that's cast over all peoples, the veil that's spread over all nations. He'll swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. As Jesus feeds the crowds, it's the calling card of the kingdom. And in the kingdom, well, the shroud of death will be lifted. The hostility of the world will cease and tears will be wiped away and it will satisfy. And Jesus, the divine king, has confirmed it for us. And while we wait for the fullness, we wait knowing the care of the king. Is Jesus really better? Well, I was reminded this week of a true story of a 12-year-old girl, now an adult, who when she was at school found her friend saying, you still don't go to church with your parents, do you? This girl was a Christian, but while facing the challenge of her friends, she decided to have her own answers. And so she read the Gospels. And as she read Matthew's Gospel and saw this Jesus, well, she said her mind was made up. She wanted to follow him, to be all in for him, not to resist him, but to live wholeheartedly for this king. And as Matthew shows us Jesus, he wants us to do the same, to put all our eggs in his basket, confident in the compassionate king who cares for his kingdom, who is the divine king, who has confirmed his kingdom. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for King Jesus. Thank you for his compassion for all who come to him in repentance. Thank you for his kingdom which he has established and that will come in fullness. Thank you for the privilege to be his people and to know his care. Please would you grow our confidence in him that we might be a wholehearted church, a repentant church, and a church that wonder at our King. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.